All right. Chapter 10, The People of Gods. I don't know if you resonated with this chapter at all. Frankly, uh, you probably had to do a little translation. It's mainly about being Roman Catholic. And since we're Lutheran, you know, there you go. All right, so uh, I, did, I do have a little handout there if you want to take a look at it. Okay, at the beginning of the chapter, just in case you were wondering, I didn't, I didn't put all the Latin terms, but there was the story about the family who uh, was planning the funeral for their father, and um, the father wanted to have the Latin mass, which is all in Latin, obviously. Well, and so the family, you know, was saying you had to all be in Latin, and Elizabeth Scalia was part of the uh, ministry team that was helping them plan it. And, you know, she said that she wasn't sure if they knew, you know, where, you know what these things meant. Well, for some of us, we might not know what those are either. So, just in case you were wondering... The Panis Anagelicus means bread of angels, Ave Maria, Hail Mary, Pastor Noster, Our Father, Done Nobis Pacem, grant us peace. I think they might have said Agnes Day, but I'm hoping that you knew that because we had that in our bulletin. Mise Re Re Nobis, have mercy on us. Okay, anyways, there you go, just in case you were wondering. If you... Uh, Ave Maria, obviously, but Panis, Angelicus, that, that's a famous opera, too, from, I can't remember, from certain mass, but, like, uh, what was the, oh, man, one of the three ten. well, I think all three tenors have a version of this, Luciano, Pavarotti. If you heard it, you would be like, oh, I've heard this before. Okay, anywho, all right, worship idols. Um, I, I like this quote. I, I like this quote because I've had to do this quite often with families in regards to funerals. I tactfully noted that our priests and altar servers lack training in the old rite, and the family's own unfamiliarity with Latin prayer responses could end up making an undignified travesty of the funeral. You have to be careful what you ask for and to whom you ask. Um, the idol you worship will give you exactly what you ask for, but God will give you what you need. All right, so th- th- that's something very important as we uh, just kind of talk about worship in general today. But in regards to um, like how to like understand worship and how we talk about worship, I think it's it's helpful to understand it in. Like, imagine a conversation that's been happening for a very long time. And you enter into the conversation. You can't just simply say, I don't want to talk about that anymore. Okay? Because you'll be labeled rude. I don't know. Self-centered. You know, a variety of nice, you know, not nice things. Um, as we talk about worship, we do have to understand that this, this conversation's been going on long before we came into existence. And because of that, then we, you know, we have to kind of learn from what's going on. 
Another thing would be, might be helpful too is um, imagine yourself as an invited guest over to a family uh, for a, a family Christmas dinner. You go in there, they have their own Christmas dinner traditions, which might be different than yours. You don't tell them that's not the way to do it. Right? I mean, you just don't do that. I mean, well, I mean, you might, but I, I, then you wouldn't be very nice. So if you do that, stop doing that. Be nice. Um, anyways, so um, that, I think that's th those are two kind of... Uh, maybe analogies that are helpful as we, we kind of talk about worship. And then um, the very nice quote here from a novel I never heard of, but uh, Abbas, Abbas, it wasn't I, it is splendid. That is the blessing of the liturgy. It wipes out self. So that, that's always going to be something that we'll have to guard against as we talk about worship or liturgy or, or you know, how we... Praise God. Um, so, yeah, it, with respect to funerals, though, little story. I have a lot of stories. I mean, I, I could think of eight million stories as I read this chapter. But I would like to hear your own stories. Uh, my first funeral I did at St. John as a pastor. The family loved singing. Or at least that's what they said. And typically we have about three hymns in a funeral service. An entrance hymn, a sermon hymn, and a, uh, a recessional hymn. Makes sense. Now, uh, in, a, in a case where we might have the Lord's Supper at a funeral, which is few and far between, we might have more hymns during distribution. Okay. Uh, but this family... Oh, by the way, I wanted to be nice. So I said, hey, why don't you come up with a few hymns? Few. When you, when you hear few, what do you think of? Two, three, maybe four. Five. Yeah, five I think would be pushing it, but not seven. Okay, so we had seven. It's a larger family. Well, they all had, they all had their the deceased favorite hymn. It was all different. So I, um, I was like, well, it's, it's a lot. So maybe we can have one as a pre-service music and post-service music. And, and then I can maybe we can have one before the sermon and after the sermon. So I, I got about six now in play. I don't know. What about the seventh one? So hem and hawed for a while. One of the hymns, though, was I Know My Redeemer Lives. Does anyone know how many verses is in, I, I know how many, okay. Well, it's at least eight, actually. I think it's only eight. And of course, I said, I, okay, great. Now I'm thinking, we'll just, you know, include all the verses, everything will be great. All right, I know where Redeemer lives was the uh, exit hymn, the recessional hymn. Guess how many people were singing by the end of that funeral service? Maybe one or two. One of them being me. I I didn't I didn't quite add up all up. I, I check it up to inexperience. 
At the end of it, though, um, one of the family members came up and said, we probably had too many songs, didn't we? <laughs> I was like, yeah, well, you know, it was fine. I mean, it wasn't a big deal, really, but it wasn't a, a, a travesty, as uh, Scalia says, but it was exhausting. Anyways, you know, I mean, some of the things that we have in terms of order actually guards against ourselves. You know, it just protects us from ourselves. And, um, you know, another thing, too, I mean, so, yeah. I think that's a simple example of how sometimes when we enter into the conversation, we think we know what we're talking about, but when people kind of direct us in a certain direction, um, maybe that's for our own good. We just have to kind of listen first. All right, though, often, okay, so often worship is understood in terms of style. You like it that way, I like it that way. But Scalia actually doesn't actually talk about worship in terms of style. She really talks about it in terms of purpose, like why you do what you do, and then in terms of tradition, like what has happened beforehand. And I think those are actually really good, uh, simple directions for us. Why we do what we do. Why do you worship? I mean, do you ever like ask yourself why you go to church? Well, like, why do you go to church? Why do you sing songs? Why do you pray during church? A lot of people don't ask themselves that. And you should. So, um, that's good. And then tradition is, is like the conversation. Now, since we're Lutheran, we're not Roman Catholic, uh, we do need to translate Scalia's chapter. So with regards to the family who sacrificed to the idol of the Latin Mass, what would be the Lutheran version? What did you say? That is so right! Page 5 and page 15. What is page 5? The old red hymnal. Well, there's the, in 1980s, blue hymnal, and then this is the 1941. Now, yes, some of the 1941s was actually blue, which made it more confusing when the, uh, oh, really? Okay. All right. The TLH. TLH, the Lutheran hymnal. Yes, page five. I never understood this until... I um, went to seminary, and there there were like seminarians who were like, I don't, we don't use that blue hymnal. I was like, what are you talking about? Well, what hymn? I like, I was like, what hymnal do you use? Well, we use right. That's right, the little handbook. Yeah. That is so funny. Okay, good. Oh, so some of you have actually recollection of this. This, this is all theoretical. This is all theoretical for me because I, I never had that experience. Well, yeah, then we got the old German to English. But yeah, this, this is like the Latin Mass for the LCMS right here. This is it. Page 5 and 15. Page 5, though. It, well, what's page 5? Without communion. Okay, not, I mean, I don't want to get too uh, technical here, but yeah. page five as a church service, it's completely made up. I know, but it's completely made up. Like you can't, I can't find a church order like that. 
It, it's literally like the first half of our divine service, just without communion. Where all the other more traditional, the, the longer conversation services without communion would have been what we known as matins, morning prayer, not just a service that just chops communion off. Anyways, so that, I always find that interesting. Of course, so when I'm in seminary and I ask the guys, I'm like, well, why did they just not have communion? Like, what was that? What kind of answer did I hear? Oh, no, they had too long. That's actually too, that would, I would have accepted that. I'd be like, okay, I, I'm not, maybe not right, but most of the answers were, this is what they've done, yes. Okay, well, we're going to get to that question in a little bit here. Yeah, the blue hymnal versus the red hymnal. And then we have uh, the burgundy hymnal. It's so funny, I think, but anyways. Yeah, but that would be the Lutheran version of the introduction to the chapter. Mary. Yeah, right. And then when Pope John the twenty third came in and had the ecumenical council, it, you didn't bring your little prayer book with you to Right. I, I was gonna bring that today, I forgot to Oh. Actually well so so this is very interesting. Um, as Jan even said, mm-hmm. I have uh, Harold Lang's old little prayer book. Does anyone know who Harold Lang is? He was a hundred and two when he died. And he, you know, he was, grew up in the Depression, mm-hmm. so it was before the Red Hymnal. And, uh, yeah, he would come to church with his little mm-hmm. prayer book, and everyone would just bring it. So, like, you wouldn't have hymnals in the pew because you all brought your own. Mm-hmm. And it was all these hymns, but it had no music, so you had to know the tune. Mm-hmm. Of course, people were more musical back then, so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So yeah, it was. That's very interesting. I don't know. Uh, yeah, peculiar. Not a bad thing though. All right. Anywho, um, so so at, this is kind of where we, we're we're talking about you now in terms of like how we kind of process things, kind of uh, ask ourselves kind of why we do what we do, um, and then also what has been done before, and whether what has been done before is actually like a bad thing. Because when we are the church, those who've come before us are not separated from us. Right? They are, we're part of one family. So again, go back to this like family Christmas dinner. And you have teenagers who come in and say, Mom and Dad, Grandpa and Grandma, aunts and uncles, I know we've done it this way before. I don't even like it. We're going to do this. What's going to happen to that teenager? Well, yeah, he's going to get, you know, by the old timers, you know, that might have a few words for the teenager. But often, I, I, that's the image I always think of people who come into the church and say, well, I don't want to do it that way anymore. I imagine them like as a, like a bossy teenager who thinks they know what they're talking about. Because I, I was actually pretty smart when I was about 15, 16. I, all the way up about to about 20, I, I thought I was pretty smart. And I don't know what happened. 
Right, yeah, right. Well, that's exactly true. I mean, once you get married, have children, your parents are geniuses. Yes. <laughs> okay, anyways. All right, so th th that's a hopeful friend of mine. And then, because I think some of the things we might talk about might kind of expose some of our own worship idols. Okay. So, um, uh, worshiping worship. Given our love for God and church, we people of faith fall into this trap with surprising, almost terrifying ease. We become enthralled with something specific to our faith. And because the object is a good thing or a good idea that is related to our worship, we don't even realize that we've created a strange God. It could be the Bible, a nun's habit, doesn't really apply to us, but, or an element of the liturgy that we, uh, we've put before the true God. All right, so instead of a nun's habit... What would the Lutheran version be? Or, okay, yeah, there you go. We're straight to the juggler. There you go. Uh, yeah, actually, the windows now, uh, not only just the windows in general, but a very specific window. The victory window, right? Um, well, yeah, well, it... That's right, and... and Yes, people donated money, and it worked out really great. Um, yeah, it, uh, no, so yeah, okay, so there you go. In our own specific instances, yeah, the windows, to a certain extent, were one of those uh, things that maybe were challenging to us as we kind of considered not having them. And what would be the ramifications for our worship? That's right. Ooh, wow, good. I, I was thinking more just kind of generally in terms of Lutheranism. Oh, Okay. Yeah, right, okay. All right, well, okay, so Jan's raised the thing. The neg Okay, so I have, I have a different way. I asked Mary and asked Pastor Bruzek this morning about this. I said, uh, you know, I, didn't raise, I, didn't, I wasn't raised Lutheran. Mary wasn't either. But so I, I asked Pastor Bruzek. I said, uh, can you give me some uh, things that Lutherans do that are distinctively kind of to Lutheranism? And first thing that came out of Pastor Bruzek's mouth was something we didn't do. So like, like for instance, Jan says, well, her pastor didn't wear a clerical collar. Let, we're going to save those negative examples. I call them negative examples. <laughs> Since we don't, we don't do those things, we're going to save those because we're going to come, come up in a, a little bit later about that. But right now, is there something that we do that is kind of... I, I, I only came up with a couple... I came up with a lot of negative ones, though. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Uh, what kind of robes do they wear? Well, when uh, we go to the, when we were in Siberia, there was a uh, group of Germans who had had kind of lived in Siberia and. Tomsk, and uh, Alexander Hahn was fluent in Russian, German, and English, and he would lead the German service, and he would dress in a black robe with a, with a white mm -hmm. thinger. I forgot what it's called. Well, it's a, no, it's a, it's a collar, type of collar. Yes. Anyways, okay, but, but um, yeah, so, so yeah, so different, different, uh, 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 a different uh, um, 
uh, vestment. All right, that's a, that's a negative example, though. See, it, it's very hard. I, I was going to say, we're, I, I was really... Uh, I, I, the, Yeah, or something that, as you think about, hey, only Lutherans do that. I don't know, I came up with a mighty fortress. This is the distinctively a Lutheran thing. And not only that, who said it? Donna, man, you're, you're home run. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, you stand when you sing that song. Now, I never knew that until I went on Dick Ridge. And as a, a Reformation Day, I think it was a Reformation Day, I'm assuming, I mean, you always sing it on Reformation That's That's another Lutheran thing we do. Um, uh, uh, the Floyds, Jim and, uh, I forgot, her, their old, nice old lady, uh, old old couple, Arlene. Yeah, Jim. Oh, no, yeah, there's a couple of Arlene's. Uh, I'm a vicar, and I'm, I'm singing away, because we always sit during hymns, right? singing away, and uh, Jim's like, beggar. Because he's sitting in the front, close to the front. And I look, and everybody's standing <laughs> except for me. I was like, oh, okay. I'm like, well, what, don't you know you're supposed to stand for a mighty fortress on Reformation Day? I was like, no, I did not know that. What's that? Well, yeah, and then I find out that not necessarily everybody, but it was a very common thing in uh, Lutheranism to stand at a mighty fortress. American Lutheranism, LCMS, basically. Uh, now, what, why was that, though? Does anybody know why you did it? That, that's exactly right. It was understood in terms of, like, well, you know, you, you stand for the national anthem, you stand for a mighty fortress. I was like, Really? That, that's a very, that's a very uh, analogy I wouldn't necessarily want to hold to, but um, okay, there we go. But yeah, if you didn't stand for a mighty fortress, it was kind of like, hey, what's wrong with you? Do you not believe in the Reformation? It's like, uh... all right, Holly. Yes? Oh, there you go. Behind the altar, That's right. The Sunday school Methodist Christian flag that we talk about on Sunday. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. The Christian flag, I think, will come up in a little while. I have a, I have a very interesting story about that. Yeah, okay. And uh, I wouldn't say that, but again, that I wouldn't say that's necessarily Lutheran, Lutheran, because my Baptist church growing up had that, too. But yeah, yeah, the American flag. And then on July 4th, all the soldiers should come dressed in their fatigues and then they sing uh, God Bless America or something. Yeah. Okay, I know Krista and Gunter would have a lot of very good things to say about that practice. This is one, yeah, I would also too. But anyways, okay, there we go. Um, one of the things, too, that I, I always thought was peculiar, and we don't do it here at St. John, is the elevation of the offering. That was, that's, that was very common in the 
You collect the offering. Now, we don't bring it forward anymore because we don't have any place to put it. We just keep it in the back. Um, and that was, yeah. But uh, there's a lot of churches that, and it's, it's a good practice. I mean, it's good um, to bring the offerings to the altar. And then you have like a little, ta- uh, I forgot what it's, there's actually a real name for it. They have a little table to put it on. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, we would put it on the back altar, which wasn't really reserved for the offering, but we put it back there anyways. But yeah, that's exactly right. And um, yeah, and so I know when I came as a pastor, I never elevated it. I just took it, and and I always asked the ushers to wait to bow, because they always bowed, and I'm standing right there, and it looked like they were bowing to me. I'm like, no, just can you wait till I move? Because you're bowing to the altar, but it looks weird. And if people come and visit, then they're like, you know, you're offering, your, you're, you're, you're giving the money to me. Like, it's not mine. Anyways, uh, but yeah, in my vicarage, we were told we had to elevate the offering. And that was, again, that was kind of a presumption. Well, you do that. Well, why did you do it? Well, because you're, you're giving your gifts to God. Okay, that's great. No problem. But I asked a very simple question. Then do we elevate the body and blood of Christ? Absolutely not. Anathema. Do not do that. Well, I was a vicar, so I wasn't going to do it anyways. But I was like, okay. But I thought, this is kind of interesting because if you knew back in the old days when people gave their offerings, uh, you know, when you had farmers, you, you literally took the wine and bread from the offering, and that's what you used during the church service. Yeah, there's, uh, in fact, in the blue hymnal, the 1982 hymnal, I think, we never sang it at St. John, but there's actually a song, rather than the offertory song, um, you can sing, and it's about vineyards. And it actually, that's that you sing that because you would bring in the bread and the wine along with your offerings. And then the pastor would take those and prepare the altar. Anyways, so I thought, well, hey, if we're elevating the offering, why don't we just elevate the, the bread and the wine too? But anyhow. I'll, I point that out as this is a good exercise. We don't have a lot of like things we do that are unique to Lutherans. We have a lot of things that we don't do that are unique to Lutherans, but I, I couldn't come up with many pro things. Oh, Rachel. That's right. Oh, that's good. That's You're the one to be talking. Yes. Okay. I don't know. Anybody? No? Okay. There you go. No. Well, they might. I don't know, but that definitely, not, definitely not growing up. <laughs> That's right. Mary. <laughs> no peace. Don't talk to anybody. Well, Even 
well, Scalia brings that up in the book, right, doesn't she? That mentality. Um, it's funny how, uh, uh, you know, as much as we pretend we're different, uh, a lot of the things are the same within denominations and the way churches are. It's pretty funny. Okay, um, well, within this, this discussion that Scalia has, she brings up the example of the rosary and how this man responds to her uh, in such a vehement way. But what he's responding to, which I thought, I didn't know this until I read this book, the rosary is not a part of the deposit of faith, which means like it's not actually part of uh, church dogma. It's like technically that's not what you have to do. Which I never knew that about. So, but, the okay, so it's not part of the deposit of the Roman Catholic faith, but, but this guy treated it as it was. What would be a Lutheran version of that experience? Something that we swear by. This is what we do and this is what we believe. But if someone were actually to investigate it, you would find out that this is not official Lutheran doctrine or practice. And how would you do that? You would look in the Book of Concord, well, the Bible first, obviously, and then the Book of Concord. That was, that's kind of our dogmatic text to help us understand what Lutherans believe. And uh, I, I, uh, what would be the, one of the versions of that? I don't think I included it. Yeah, we actually have something. No, not the rosary, but the Lutheran version of something that we say is, that is what we believe, and this is Lutheran doctrine, but it actually isn't. It's not part of the, the, the official doctrine of the Lutheran Church. Did I, did I include confirmation in there? I, I, I proofread it after I printed out my own version, so I, I can't remember if I deleted it or not. One of the Lutheran versions that I've come across to is confirmation and communion. doctrine that you have to be confirmed before you receive communion. It's just not. Okay. Here at St. John, though, of course, we don't, we don't practice that. We take, you, you have communion before confirmation. Uh, you can have communion before confirmation, or you can wait. I mean, you could not have communion after you're confirmed, too, if you wanted to. Uh, we don't impose that on people. The other thing, too, would be the relationship of age and communion. There is no Lutheran dogma in stating this is when you have to have communion. Or there's nothing stating that you can't have communion. Um, That's a good job. That's exactly right. You can be baptized as an infant or you can be baptized as an adult. Of course, Lutheran practice is, you you know, the question is why would you wait, right? But that's a good point, Kathy. That's exactly right. Very good. So um, we are for infant communion, but that's not necessarily, uh, I mean, infant baptism. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be baptized as an infant. Yeah, right. That's a good practice, but it's not mandated. It's not mandated by Lutheran doctrine. St. John does do that, of course, yes. Uh, Yeah, a child has to confess. I mean, anybody, child or adult, 
has to, con uh, it doesn't have to, but it, the Bible says um, how you, you discern, discern the body and blood of, of, of Christ. Now, of course, what exactly does that mean? The Bible is written to adults. It's not written for children. That's actually not about children. So how do you apply that to children? Um, Holly and I watched a TED Talk the other night, and it blew my mind about children and language. Holy smokes. Um, children can already discern languages by, guess how old? Well, no, uh, yeah, you can't measure it in the womb. So there you go. This is like measuring. You can discern already by uh, tw 12 months. Well, okay, so here we go. Anyways, we're not going to talk about this. But this, these are the questions. We have such a, a, a set way of doing things. But now when we're challenged by like real facts, how do we approach that? How do we, how do we deal with things? Do we say, this is the way we've always done it? This is the way we've always believed about it? Well, then the question would be, well, is that actually the whole story or not? Now, in terms of, like, as the Roman Catholics would say, the deposit of faith, that's something that's been kind of established, and it's, like, unquestionable, meaning, like, the divinity of Jesus. Well, that, you got to believe in that, okay? Of course, we say that also in the Lutheran Book of Concord. But there are other things that are not necessarily prescribed uh, or, 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 or uh, prohibited, which are called ideophora. Okay? But a lot of times we've treated ideophora as it is, in fact, dogma. Case in point in that book, though, is that rosary bit. Of course, that doesn't really apply to us, although I have a funny picture of Luther in his rosary. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great picture of Luther in his study. And, and inside the, one of his books is he's got a rosary. So ah, that's always a little joke. But All right, Barbara. Yep. Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. No, that's true. Yeah, Luther, Lutheran in the, the Deutsche Messe says, Pastor communes himself first. And <laughs> well, see, that's the thing, though, is that... Yeah, you should still... Hi, hey, case in point, we were at a pastor's conference. Uh, was that last week? Yeah, on Tuesday and Wednesday. And Tuesday night we went to a church service and a uh, great co uh, country church. I mean, it was like, it was really neat. Um, but the head elder was there and usually the, the local pastor will lead the service and they'll have a, like a guest preacher, but he'll be the celebrant. And he's celebrating, you know, does everything. And then uh, the head elder gets up there and I'm like, well, it's interesting. The head elder is distributing the body of Christ. Which has always been, for like here at St. John, we always had the pastor do it because the, that's the first go. Like, whatever the pastor does, you follow. Well, 
I thought, what is this? I, 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 I had to ask myself, I'm like, first of all, why is the head elder up there? There's 300 pastors here. Why are we? Maybe not 300, 200 or whatever it was. But, you know, whatever, that's their local practice. But it did ask, it caused me to reflect upon it. And, I, and so the vicar, too, so after we're driving back to the hotel from the church, and, all right, vicar, what did you notice? You know, what did you? And uh, that was the first thing that popped up was, why did the elder give it and not the pastor? But, of course, as Lutherans, we believe that what makes the sacrament the sacrament? The word, exactly. And so, yeah, so then your question on it, and then, yeah, but I'm, I, so, there, case in point, I'm a pastor, and even I have to say, this is what Lutherans believe, even though that's not what we've, that me, that's not what I have done. I have to say, oh, wait a second, this is, and, and the pastor spoke, the pastor stood in, in the stead of Christ, and it wasn't like, you know, somebody was bringing some, something from outside the room, and I'm not sure exactly what's going on, it was all very clear and crystal. Uh, so, yeah, but I'll give you another, another little story. It happened, in fact, yesterday after morning communion here at St. John. Uh, someone asked me, oh, I wasn't sure if I got the blood of Jesus. I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, you only bless the cup that you were holding. So what did they equate with the doctrine? Was my hand motion, which, of course... We're not, I mean, that's not Lutheran, right? Lutheran is, it's always the word. And so, of course, the word is spoken over. Yeah. Anyways, so these are good examples. That's a great example, and I'm glad you, you checked with your pastor, but you should, in good confidence, feel that way. But again, these are where practices um, come up against our belief, and we have to say to ourselves, wait a second, we've never done it this way. But, in fact, is that the only way? You know, there's a question about, like, you know, what's best and all that. That's not what we're really talking about quite yet today. But Okay. Karin. That's right, yeah, so uh, a lot of Lutherans will wear this kind of collar, and Catholics will wear the, the tab. Uh, I, don't ha- I, ha- I have a backup, which is a really old t-shirt or shirt that has a tab, but it, it really makes no difference. Uh, in fact, I mean, the whole clerical garb is, of course, I often get the question, do you have to dress that way? No, I do not have to. I, uh, I choose to. And uh, so, yeah, I would say, do I have to wear this collar or a different collar? I'm like, no, I, I, cho- I usually because it's cheaper. <laughs> and, uh, so anyways, so there's a lot of practical, you know, they're not grand theological reasons. It's because it's cheaper, it's more comfortable, uh, you know, anyways. Um, but yeah, and, and so when we... So a lot of times people ask me that question because they generally want to know, like, do you have to dress that way? Because they would think I'd be uncomfortable or whatever. 
Then other times people ask me that in terms of confrontation. You don't have to dress that way. Why are you dressing that way? Um, we often ask ourselves, I think I have that, the God of, uh, I, you, don't, you don't tell me what to do, or the God of, uh, you don't have to do it that way. Yeah. And, and actually, Scalia actually talks about that when she, she uh, uh, observed uh, this group of people praying the, this rosary bit, and the woman wasn't doing it correctly, or whatever, in quotes, correctly. That's a great example of how someone, she, that woman, based on what Scalia describes, is probably fulfilling the prayer or the form better than someone who said it perfectly but just, you know, it's kind of just going through the motions. Um, and so that, that's part of the whole thing is that as, yeah, I don't have to do it this way. But the question is, why are you doing it this way? And if you really don't have a good answer, then you have to ask yourself, it, can I find a good answer for this? Because people have been doing it this way. Even though I don't understand it, you know, is there an, actually an explanation for why we're doing it this way? And once you get that explanation, you have to ask yourself, is it a good explanation? Is it actually a blessing? And if it is, then I would really kind of ask yourself, why are you interested in rubbing up against it or, or changing that? Um, is it for yourself? Or is it for something grander? That's the, speaking of Lutherans, uh, that's what Martin Luther struggled with a lot when he was talking about reformation of the church. You know, am I doing this for my own glory or am I doing it for the church? And so, anyways. All right. Uh, all right. Oh, Krista, yes. I just only want to um, uh, um, uh, point here what, what I really want to say. Um, that uh, uh, page for uh, 145. And uh, um, as a rotary is not part of the businesses of faith, blessed John Paul did not do wrong in expanding the meditation. Right. And, uh, you know, just um, as a Pope, um, he, he changed the, his model right. to, um, um, to um, totally yours. Mm. You know, he, he, and he changed, he, he replaced Christ. Oh, yeah, you mean about the rosary itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, good. Thank you, Krista. Yeah, he changed the rosary in a very non-evangelical way. Like a, like, and, yeah, so when I actually show the Luther with his rosary, Luther did pray the rosary, but that rosary he prayed was very different than one that Krista just described. Um, in fact, uh, there is a, uh, um, uh, boy, I can't remember where, it's in one of Luther's works, and he, he's actually writing about Mary. And uh, uh, he doesn't use the word rosary, but uh, there's uh, some Luther scholars who think he's actually talking about his own practice of, with the rosary. And it, it, he is actually reforming the, how you look at Mary. Uh, Luther holds Mary in a very high place. Kind of like the like the like the most faithful disciple in a sense, um, but at the same time he is not giving 
uh, kind of what we'd say is like, you know, co-redemptrix, a, a place of redeemership to her. And so there some, I would call them nerds, looked up old rosaries that would conceivably be prayed by Lutherans. And yeah, they, I, I got it. It's it's a it's pretty. It's called the pre-Trent Rosary, and it is essentially Apostles' Creed, uh, uh, the Our Father, the Jesus Prayer, um, which is uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Amen. Um, and then uh, there are these uh, Magnificat, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with. And then there's this pre-Trent, uh, uh, I forgot what it's called, exhortation to Mary or something like that. But if you read it, it's very different than, than what I think most people understand as the rosary because it's changed so much. So, But it, what uh, Scalia actually meant, not to spend any time on the rosary, but uh, Scalia mentions is that the rosary was good because it's, it's repetitive and meditative like just the practice of those things. And so, I mean, on that level, whatever, that's good. You should be meditating and repeating, repeating because when you do that, you learn something by heart. So that's something we should always do just as Christians in general. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's uh, the, whole, the whole motion of all that. that. There's a lot of positive things about the rosary. Um, but anyways, but the doctrine necessarily, or the prayer, I mean, when you pray to Mary, obviously, yeah, you, you don't pray to Mary, you pray to Jesus. So, okay. All right, the God of, uh, so the God of, this is how we've done it, uh, always done it, and it's partner, these are the people who've always done them. Uh, so Mary, Stephanie, described the exclusive aspect. People come to church and no one talks to each other. There's other, another aspect of how, uh, uh, you know, nepotism. I'm in charge of this ministry. No one's welcomed because I'm in charge kind of thing. She gave a, real, a really interesting example. And I have actually experienced this at St. John. Um, Advent dinners. We had an, a nice, well, this wasn't uh, in, in the negative aspect, but we had a very nice woman who led the Advent dinners, and then she moved. I don't know who she was. She moved before I came. Very nice lady, but basically she just took it upon herself to do it, and everyone was like, hey, great, someone else is doing it. I don't have to do it. And then when she moved away, Pastor, why don't we have Advent dinners? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, why not? Well, aren't you going to take care of it? I didn't know I was supposed to. And, and, and anyway, so, so as um, you know, so people weren't necessarily part of this ministry, this this work, and so it just fell away until uh, this this past year. Now, now we're doing it again with good success. But yeah, Holly. Right. The lady that ran it, it's never moved, and no one else is like going to touch it with a 10 foot pole. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I feel like that happens a lot at our, at our church or like other churches. Oh, yeah. It's like, 
Right. Uh, yeah, the whole the whole kind of environment for our community has changed over the decades. Uh, in talking with a lot of the, the shut-ins, um, it was so funny. They would always say, like, well, why, why don't you get these people to do it? These type of people, like some mothers or, or uh, young families. And I was like, well, because a lot of mothers work now, and um, a lot of families are busy with extracurricular activities, and um, dads work longer, and now any free time, they don't want to be doing those things. They want to be just hanging out, being with each other. Um, so things have changed, and because of that, the way you do things at church just changes. I mean, it's not bad for better or for worse, right? You have to adapt. And one of the things I wrote in there, institutional existence as an end goal is only wrapped up in yourself. Meaning that there, there comes in times where, where things in the church just have to stop being done because things have changed. Um, you know, so that doesn't mean you stop doing things, though, period. It's, it's you work and then you adapt and, and you do your best to... Uh, Proclaim the gospel where you're at. Okay. Uh, the, the other aspect, though, was the inclusion. Did anybody run into that ever? You go to a church and they ask you to stand up and introduce yourself to the congregation. You're clapping and all that stuff. It's a little overwhelming for some people. Other people find it very friendly, like Scalia mentions. Um, I probably would be on the more uncomfortable side because I don't necessarily... I kind of guard who's you know comes into my life, and when someone tries to push themselves into it, I'm kind of I, I interpret that as not being friendly but pushy. <laughs> so, um, but you know th- those are the two sides of the one coin. Krista, yeah. Yes. Yeah, right. That, oh, yeah, right. And, and, and Scalia goes, uh, actually, I think the quote from the, the Joseph Ratzinger is a, uh, a really good quote. I put it in there. But um, I, the antidote to both of these exclusive and inclusive things is just being normal <laughs> and, and, and listening. I have a quote from The Big Kahuna. Anybody ever see that movie? Probably not. Small movie. Great movie. It's about, uh, I probably mentioned it in here before, but it's about a, uh, a sales team that goes to, I think, Wichita, Kansas, for a, a, uh, a kind of an industry convention, and they sell lubricants, industrial lubricants, you know, like oil or whatever, make machines go. Kevin Spacey, Danny DeVito, and then this other guy who, I, I don't, he's not a famous actor. Kevin Spacey's the salesman. Danny DeVito is kind of his, uh, another salesman. But the, the, uh, the third guy is there for technical support. He's like the scientist. He's the guy who works with the lubricants. Anyways, he's a Christian. And he, so Kevin Spacey and Danny DeVito, they're there to close some deals. They're, they're going to try to catch the big kahuna, the big client at this convention. But they can never seem to, get into his own personal space so that he, they can kind of talk to him about business. Well, this third guy, 
stumbles in into this kind of like uh, after party of the convention and sits down and meets the big kahuna. Rather than closing the sales deal, what does he do? He evangelizes him. And guess what happens to the sale? Yeah, it doesn't happen. Um, so Danny DeVito, well, Kevin Spacey's hilarious in this. He can't, he's just so upset that this guy wouldn't like try to close the deal. But then uh, Danny DeVito, in a very kind of existential moment, talks to this young man. And I think it's very, very appropriate. It doesn't matter whether you're trying to sell Jesus, Buddha, civil rights, or how to make money in real estate with no money down. That doesn't make you a human being. It makes you a marketing rep. If you want to talk to someone honestly as a human being, ask him about his kids. Find out what his dreams are. Just to find out, for no other reason. Because as soon as you lay your hands on a conversation to steer it, it's not a conversation anymore. It's a pitch. And you're not a human being. You're a marketing rep. I think that's great. So, uh, you know, when people come into your midst, uh, you treat them like a human being. I don't know if Pastor Bruzek says that a lot up in the office. I don't know if he says that out in Bible study or, or not. But... Uh, this is what he's talking about, is that when we talk to people, we realize that um, they're human beings and, and they're not here to buy something, but they're here to be related to or to be, to be part of something. And we have to understand who they are first by listening and then, and then relating. And then as far as their participation... We always leave, leave that in the Holy Spirit's guidance. All right, anyways, I think that's very instructive of, of the antidote. All right, we, all right, so we'll just introduce this. Maybe we'll finish this up next week. But um, worshiping self, and this is where I think we, I, I kind of put in uh, the, the negatives. Uh, the idol, you don't have to do all that stuff, or it's partner, it's good enough for the church. This would be the negatives. What, what, what don't Lutherans do? One of them I have to share. Uh, well, I'll just share the story real quick. Um, when I first became a pastor here at St. John, the Christian flag, which is actually a Methodist, it was started by Methodists, I mean, you know, not exclusively Methodists, this quote-unquote Christian flag was uh, in the school, the school, and, uh, and they would say this pledge to it. And I asked a simple question. Where does this pledge come from? Boy, that was, that was a hard question to answer. We don't know. Okay. Do you know where does the Christian flag come from? We don't know. Okay. Why do you do it? Well, it's, it's to get kids to, like, I mean, it's a very nice reason to, like, uh, you know, kind of pledge allegiance to the faith. It's like, okay, great. I said, you know, we already have a pledge. That's really good, actually. It's called the Apostles' Creed. We say that at baptism, and that should be our pledge for life. Maybe we should, uh, maybe we should do that. 
I, I thought that was a real simple thing to talk about, but it wasn't. It was hard. Um, the other thing was, though, is replacing the flag with a, like a kind of a real Christian symbol. And I, I said, well, can we have a crucifix? Well, Pastor Gainig brought up the crucifix bit. We were kind of working in tandem then. Um, and uh, and that, was, uh, that was a tough pill to swallow also. For a variety of reasons. First is to get rid of the flag. That was not a good idea. They took that as um, we have been doing something terrible. Which I said, well, no, it, it's not being about doing something terrible. It's about kind of doing what the church has always been doing, kind of getting back in line in a sense, back to that conversation. Because the, the reason why you're doing it is very good. You want kids to kind of Every morning you want to say to yourself, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus. I, you know. um, but, of course, you want to do it with what has kind of always been. And, and the cross, crucifix, has always been part of that. Um, but the question was, well, do you have to do it that way? Okay. Well, okay, no, you don't have to do it that way. <laughs> Um, well, then why, why are you making us do it? Well, I'm not making you do it. I just thought this would be more appropriate for us as Lutherans. Because, well, the flag, the flag, first of all, the flag was started by Methodists. You know? Not to say that we can't incorporate other things from other denominations. We do it enough here at St. John. It's not a big deal. But, you know, why was that started? Well, it was started to invoke a sense of nationalism within the church. Okay, that's fine, but we already have all that stuff. It's called the, I mean, it's called the creed, and uh, we have symbols in the church that uh, define us as Christians, not the Christian flag. It's, you know, it's always been the cross. It's always been the cross, the crucifix. So I said, like, well, let's just do this because this is something that's unique to Christians. Everyone's got a flag. Not everyone has the crucifix, just Christians. Okay. Um, well, anyways, so, uh, and then the pledge, uh, replacing with the Apostle Creed. So, you know, I have this quote, I, you know, when we worship ourselves, we've created a world where we live in that doesn't have anything last, uh, that, that doesn't have anything that lasts, like that lasts. I, I misspelled that there. Um, but when that's threatened, by something godly, we look to crucify it because we can't imagine a world that doesn't have us as its center. And when in talking with the, the people who were involved in all this, it really was, when you boiled it down, is this is the way we've done it, and you, can, you can't tell me what to do. Was it really about the Christian flag? No, it was about, it was about themselves. Was it about the, the, the content of the pledge? Not really. It was it was about something entirely different, and that is that. I think that for me, that's always will be an example in my mind how someone has taken something that was good and warped it around their own agenda, basically to the demise of what's already been. Okay, is the cross bad? No, it's really good. Why are you trying to keep it out of the classroom? 
Okay. Is the Apostles' Creed bad? No, it's really good. Why are you trying to keep it out of the classroom? Well, anyways, we're confronted with that. It was a big, big transition, but you know, every, everyone changed. I mean, it was, it was something that eventually turned out to be okay. And if you go down in the preschool, in the pre-K, you will find crucifixes around in every room. Because what we found out was it wasn't broken in the first place, and we didn't need to change it. We just needed to go back to what was already being done. You know, because it's like 2,000 years old. I mean, it's kind of kind of a bigger deal than us. The Christian flag is only 100 years old, so. 120 or something like that. Yeah, Krista. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so the people demonstrated. Yeah, right. So, um, but, but it is always, uh, I think, a sign that these are Christians. That's right. Um, That's exactly right. So, uh, you know, but this is something where uh, it, it became such an odd discussion for me because I thought this would be kind of like a, like a nice talk <laughs> about, like, kind of old traditions, lasting traditions, and uh, you know, kind of like family traditions. You're kind of like talking, talking to uh, someone who has maybe done uh, family history and found all these cool things about their family and realized, oh, hey, we used to do things, and I kind of want to do it now. Because this is, you know, way great-grandpa used to do things, and, you know, and this is how we used to do it back in Norway. I, th- I thought that, that's how I thought the conversation was going to go, but it didn't. It was... Uh, it was not a, it was not fun but um but but exactly though but you have to ask yourself though as we kind of understand our worship practices and 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 based on what we believe we might have those experiences where we're really confronted with something that really challenges us and we have to rethink things um that's happened to me forever and ever we'll we'll get to that maybe next week then because um I've been told this lots of times. Well, that's what you want. Or, that's what you like. And what most people don't understand is that has not always been that way for me. Things I talk about and recommend, I've not always liked. And I've not always done it that way. Um, But something's changed in me. And because of that change, then I say, hey, this is something that we should be thinking about. It most often comes up during weddings and funerals, but that conversation. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, so next week, uh, finish up the book. We're going to talk about our own idols.
Um, but ask that I'm going to ask that question. What are things that are kind of distinctively Lutheran that we don't do? And you might have to think about your growing up because you might be doing things now that you didn't do when you were younger. I don't know if that just made sense or not, but I don't know if I'm saying it right. But Rather than thinking about what do Lutherans distinctively do, like we talked about a mighty fortress, what are some of the things that you've been told that, well, Lutherans don't do that? Okay? And then think over the course of your book, what's the, what, are, what have been the chapters that have been most impactful on you? Because uh, you, you find out what you know, Scalia's dreadful idol is in the last chapter. And uh, I, I want you to think about your own dreadful idol. Okay? All right. Well, next week is the last week.